Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Good morning, AGC. My name is Grace, and today's reading is from Matthew 9, 18-34. As he was telling them these things, suddenly one of the leaders came and knelt before him, saying, My daughter is near death, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus and his disciples got up and followed him. Just then, a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached him from behind and touched the tassel on his robe. For she said to herself, If I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. But Jesus turned and saw her. Have courage, daughter, he said. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that moment. When Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw the flute leaders, uh, flute players, and a crowd lamenting loudly. Leave, he said, because the girl isn't dead, but sleeping. And they started laughing at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. And this news spread throughout that whole area. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, shouting, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men approached him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I can do this? Yes, Lord, they answered him. Then he touched their eyes and said, Let it be done for you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. Then Jesus warned them sternly, Be sure that no one finds out. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout the whole area. Just as they were going out, a demon-possessed man who was unable to speak was brought to him. When the demon had been driven out, the man spoke. And the crowds were amazed, saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He drives out demons by the ruler of demons. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. Let's exchange greetings this morning. Good morning. Good morning. morning. Love it. If you haven't already, I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 9, where we just were, um, where Grace just read for us. Got a lot of miracles today. Um, Before we dive in, though, I I was thinking about this verse the last, like, two days, and it just can't, I can't get it out of my head. So I was like, maybe, I think this is from the Lord. And uh, it's Hebrews 13, 8. And it says this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And right before that, in Hebrews chapter 13, it actually says this, Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself, that is Jesus, has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? I just want to read that over us as an encouragement. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His heart is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His character, the same yesterday, today, forever. His love for you, the same yesterday, today 
and forever. His power over your sin, your shame, your weakness is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. God loves you. Jesus loves you. And that love is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's continue worshiping through prayer. Our Father, thank you. Thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Holy Spirit, we ask you to stir our hearts, to tune them to sing your praises. We ask that whatever burdens we are carrying on our own, that you would remove them. We ask that you would correct any lies that our minds are telling us, that the enemy is telling us, that we might live in the abundance that you have for us. Live into the calling that you have called us to, holy and beloved children of you. Make us pure, we pray. Go before us in this time and come, Holy Spirit, and do what only you can do. We pray all this in your son's name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. We are in the gospel according to Matthew, and uh, we've been in this for some time now. And the last couple weeks, uh, Jesus has been on a miracle blitz. Um, one scholar said a miracle rampage, but rampage sounded too angry, and I was like, I don't know if I like that. Like, he's just like, yeah, miracles. Um, but basically, Jesus comes down from the mountain after the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he's teaching us what the kingdom of heaven is like. If you want to know what Jesus was talking about on any given day, like, hey, what was Jesus talking about on a Tuesday or something like that? Read the Sermon on the Mount. Odds are it was from that. He comes down on the mountain, and then he starts showing us what the kingdom of heaven is like, and immediately, immediately, he starts performing miracles. So he's on a miracle blitz. It's just miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. It starts with the leper. The leper comes to him, and Jesus actually reaches out his hand and touches him, entering into his sickness, into his disease, saying, I am willing uh, th this is who I am. I'm not distant and afraid of your sickness, your sin, your shame, your disease. I am willing to be made clean. The centurion's servant, Jesus actually says he's never seen anybody in now all of Israel with a faith like the centurion. He heals him from a distance just with his word. Peter's mother-in-law was sick with a fever. He touches her. She is healed. The winds and the waves obey Jesus. So not just like disease and sickness, but actually like the weather and like the creation obey Jesus. Uh, demons were driven out of a person and driven into pigs, and the pigs went into the lake. A uh, paralytic was healed and forgiven. The, the paralytic's friends brought them to Jesus. Jesus forgave his sins, and then he says, also get up, uh, take up your mat, and, and walk away, because it's the same. The Son of Man is here, here to forgive sins. And then today we're going to look at uh, a couple more stories. There's a, a dead girl uh, the ruler's, uh, uh, the, ru the leader's daughter has died, a woman with internal bleeding, healing of blind men, and driving out a mute spirit. And what's interesting is a little foreshadowing. In the next chapter, chapter 10, Jesus is actually going to give his disciples the exact same authority. 
So the authority that Jesus has, the power that Jesus has, which right now, up until this point, is only, like, Jesus is the only one doing these things. In the next chapter, he's actually going to give that power and that authority to his 12 disciples, and he's going to tell them, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and drive out demons. So now ordinary Joe Schmoes, who are just around Jesus, they get this power, and they start to do it. And at the end of Matthew, Jesus is actually going to give all disciples the same authority. All disciples. All disciples. The same authority. And we see that in the book of Acts. Acts is filled after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It goes right to Acts. Acts is what? The Acts of the Apostles. Actually, it's more like the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Acts is filled with what? Story after story after story of the power of God moving through just everyday people like you and me who say, Lord, I believe. I am yours. I mean, at one point it says that Paul was touching like washcloths and those washcloths were being taken to people and then like touched the people who were sick and then those people were sick. Like Paul didn't even have to be there. Like that's, Acts is weird. Acts is like crazy. When you actually read it, you're just like, wait, what is happening here? There was a guy that uh, fell asleep during a sermon, which is like, you know, I can relate to that. (laughs) And fell out of a window, died. Paul touched him and he came back to life. And this isn't like, oh, well, it's because Paul is Paul. It's like, no, th- there are other people as well, just people who are just in the Holy Spirit. I mean, it, when you look at the book of Acts and you look at the early church and you look at the discipleship of the early church, sometimes I look at that and I look at men and women of history and they walk with God. And you can just tell they are walking with God. They are praying without ceasing and it's like not boring to them. They can't lose. You ever think about that? People in Acts, people in the early church, people throughout church history, you could take everything from them. You could take their money from them. You could take their jobs from them. You could take their family from them. You could take their security from them and they can't be broken. There's a resiliency with these disciples. Not to mention the miracles and the gifts of the Spirit, the, the, the gifts of the Spirit of discernment, of prophecy, of healing, of hospitality, of encouragement, of words, of knowledge. Sometimes I, like me personally, I, sometimes I look at the New Testament and I look at church history and I look at the disciples. Not the 12 disciples, I'm just saying like in general, like disciples of Jesus, Christians. And if I'm honest with myself, sometimes their discipleship to Jesus looks nothing like my discipleship to Jesus. Because these stories are riveting, like explosive, and they're exciting, and sometimes I'm bored with my faith. These stories of the disciples, they're bold, they're courageous, they fear nothing, and sometimes I'm timid, I'm scared, and I'm ashamed of my faith. These disciples, people who follow Jesus, they're impermeable. You cannot take away their joy. You cannot take away their peace. You cannot take away their life. And sometimes I feel like I'm lacking in my faith. These disciples changed cultures, changed economies, changed civilizations, and in fact, entire empires were often brought to their knees because of the sacrificial love, selflessness, and power of the Spirit. And sometimes I feel like my prayers can't do anything. Do you ever feel that disconnect in your life? You look at the New Testament. You look at the men and women of God in church history. And then you look at your own faith. And there's a disconnect. Recently, I listened to a sermon by this guy named John Tyson. And he said this. 
if you're bored with your faith, then so is God. And I was like, great, just sort of need more condemnation, more all this. And then he quickly qualified it. And he's like, no, no, this isn't an accusation. This is actually an invitation because God wants so much more for you than that. God wants so much more for you than a thin, timid discipleship. He does. Guys, some of the claims of the New Testament, at the end of Ephesians 1, Paul says that Christ fills you with all the fullness of God. Do you feel like you're filled with all the fullness of God? Paul says that there's a peace that surpasses all understanding, and sometimes I feel like I don't have any peace. There's this disconnect, and if you're bored with your faith, so is God, and that's not an accusation, that's an invitation, because God wants more for you than that. And sometimes the reason we're bored with our faith is because we have a theology that fits our experience, right? We have an understanding of God that fits our experience of God. Here's a few examples. If, your ex- if my experience of God in my own life is always, is, is God always just coming to me to correct me, always, like just to convict me, correct me, you know, condemn me, then I will develop, without intentionally doing this, I will develop a theology of God as this distant God who just is waiting for me to make a mistake so that he can tell me where I'm wrong and where I need to go right. That's a theology based on my experience. If I have an experience of never hearing God, never hearing God, not knowing what he sounds like, not knowing how to listen to the Spirit, not knowing how to hear Jesus speak to me, then I will develop a theology of God that says, well, God doesn't speak the same way now as he did then. He doesn't speak the same way. You know, he spoke to the prophets in this way, and he spoke to the early church in this way, but he doesn't speak now. That is a theology of God, an understanding of God that is based on my lack of experience of God. If I have never experienced God healing, we pray for healing a lot. Lord, remove this cancer, remove this disease, remove this brokenness in their body. But if I've never experienced God heal, then I could develop a theology of God that says, well, God doesn't heal today like he did then. And I don't know about you, but I don't want a theology based on my experience. I want a theology based on the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I want an understanding of God that doesn't, that remo- like blows all my categories and experience out of the water. Because if we have a theology, an understanding of God, that fits our experience, it's actually harder to have faith in God. Because if, if my, listen to this, if my experience is that God is uh, only of God convicting me, condemning me, telling me where I'm wrong, and then therefore I develop a theology that God is just like this distant like schoolmaster who's always angry, then that means that when God brings comfort, freedom from shame, and a lightness, then I'll be, my categories will be like, well, no, that's, not how, I, that's not my theology of God. My theology of God is that he's always here to tell me where I need to go right. And it'll be harder for me to have faith. If my experience of God is that he doesn't speak to me anymore, and therefore I develop a theology that he doesn't speak in the same ways anymore, then when I actually do feel a prompting of the Spirit, when I actually do hear the voice of Jesus, I'll, I'll not know what it is. I'll be like, well, I don't know if, does God speak that way anymore? Or is that just like me and my own thinking, my own intuitions? It's hard to have faith. If I've never experienced God heal and therefore I develop a theology of God that says God doesn't heal anymore today, then when somebody is healed, I'll justify it. Well, it's probably the medication they were taking. Well, it was probably, you know, their body just healed itself. 
You see what I'm saying? When we develop a theology and an understanding of God that does not fit, or that fits our experience of God, then it's actually harder for us to have faith. If we have a theology based on our, based on our experience, it will be hard to have faith. And so we're gonna look at that today. What, what is a faith? What does faith look like? Like actually, practically, what does faith look like? And we're gonna look at a few stories and a few characters that encounter Jesus, and some of them, some of them, don't care what their experience or lack thereof is, they just, they want Jesus. And they respond with just like a love and an abandon. But some of them have a, theo- they have an, a lack of experience with God, and therefore they have a theology that fits all their, all their boxes and checks all their boxes. And so whenever they do encounter Jesus, they don't have any faith. They can't respond in faith. They're closed-minded. So what we're gonna do today is we're gonna go through these miracle stories at the end of chapter nine. We're just gonna talk through them um, and then we're gonna go back and talk to them again and we're gonna look specifically at faith and specifically at the response of all of these people when they encounter Jesus. So let's look at uh, chapter nine, verse 18. Chapter nine, verse 18. As he, Jesus, was telling them these things, by the way, that's from last week, Jesus was talking about to the Pharisees about um, go, and then John's disciples about go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's talking about new wine and, and new wineskins, old wine and old wineskins. Jesus is bringing something categorically new. In other words, if we have a lack of experience of God and therefore develop a theology of God based on that lack of experience, we'll be like new wine and old wineskins. Anyway, so as he was telling them these things, suddenly, immediately, one of the leaders came up and knelt down before him, before Jesus, saying, my daughter just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Verse 19, so Jesus and his disciples got up and followed him. Now, you know what Jesus' disciples are thinking in this moment? What's Jesus gonna do? Because you can't touch a dead body. If you're a good Jew, you can't touch a dead body. And what did the ruler say? He said, lay your hand on her and she will live. So the disi- I love the immediacy of this. Jesus got up, his disciples got up, and they went, right? But the disciples have to be thinking, uh, Jewish ritual says you can't touch a dead body. It's not a sin to do it, but you're ri- you are ritually unclean, which means you can't go to the synagogue for a few days. You have to do all these purification rituals, all this stuff. You can't, go, you can't sacrifice all this stuff. So, and if you're a good rabbi, if you're a good Jew, then you know I can't touch dead bodies. So they, they get up and they go, and while they're there, while they're on the way there, they're, they're interrupted. Verse 20, just then, just then, right, as soon as they got up and started following this ruler to take him to his daughter who had just died, just then a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind and touched the end of his robe, for she said to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. 12 years, 12 years ago today was October 29th, 2011. 2011, where were you? Some of you weren't born in 2011. Where were you October 29th, 2011? Imagine all of the stuff that has taken place between that date and this date, that's 12 years. Now imagine suffering, suffering. It doesn't say she had, she was suffering from this bleeding, from this disease, for 12 years. You think she's tried everything? You think she's seen every doctor? You think she's prayed over and over and over and over and over and over again? Yet what does she do when she hears about Jesus? 
She's like, I, I, don't, I don't care. I don't care if it's not appropriate for me to touch him because a, a woman couldn't touch a man and she was unclean, ceremonially unclean as well. And so if she touched Jesus, then he would be ceremonially unclean as well. And then he would have to go through these rituals in order to go to synagogue and worship God. And if you're a good Jew, if you're a good rabbi, you definitely can't have that happen. And she reaches out and touches him. And does her uncleanness transfer to him? His cleanness, his holiness, his purity transfers to her. Jesus turned and saw her, verse 22, have courage. I don't know who needs this, but I think somebody needs to hear Jesus say to you, have courage. Have courage. Life is hard. It is. Have courage. He said, your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well, or saved, the Greek there is saved, from that very moment. So it's like Jesus is on this way to heal this leader's daughter, and then you have this interruption story of this woman coming to him, asking for, or touching his robe, and, and he is, or she is saved. Verse 23, back to the leader with his daughter. When Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw the flute players and a crowd lamenting loudly. Um, in uh, this context, you would depending on how loud the lament was, was how significant or rich or popular or high up in society you were. So if you were poor and you were like a nobody in society, you didn't have any lamenters. Uh, but if you were like rich, then you would have a lot of lamenters and you'd actually pay them. They were professional lamenters, which it just feels like so insincere. Like your job in the morning is like, all right, gotta cry today. You know, like let's, let's get this going. And so you would, they, would, they would hire these people. So clearly this leader is, this, this person, this leader, is very high up in society. He, he has a lot to lose by um, his daughter dying, by looking foolish, by all this stuff. And so Jesus comes, he sees these flute players, he sees this crowd lamenting loudly. Verse 24, leave, Jesus said, the girl's not dead but asleep. And they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, Jesus went in, took her by the hand, and the girl got up. Was Jesus offended or repelled? at this dead girl. No. What did he do? Did, did her uncleanness, did her ritual impurity transfer to Jesus? No. He stepped into her death. Her death. Grabbed her by the hand and she was raised to life. Then, rightfully so, verse 26, news about this spread throughout that whole area. Next miracle story. As Jesus went out from there, Two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. The, uh, the idea here of calling out is like repetitively calling out. And in another story, some of the disciples are actually annoyed, in another gospel account, some of the disciples are actually annoyed about this. These two blind guys are like, have mercy on us, son of David, just screaming it at the top of their lungs. And what's interesting is that this is the first time the phrase son of David is used in, in somebody's like character. So at the beginning of Matthew, um, if you remember all the way back to January, Matthew 1, 1, the beginning of the, or the account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So, so Matthew's already told us Jesus is the son of David. In other words, Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne, the messianic king who will bring all nations to him and he will rule over the nations in justice and love and mercy and selflessness and sacrifice and all these things, right? These two blind guys are the first to, and this is intentionally ironic, are the first to see who Jesus really is. Has anybody else called Jesus the son of David at this point? No. These two blind guys are like, I know who you are. You are the son of David. 
You are the rightful heir to the throne. You are the king in and through whom all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. Every, all who take refuge in you are blessed. These two blind guys, they actually get it. They see, even though they can't see. And so 28, Jesus enters the house, goes inside the house, and the, the blind man approached him. So this is interesting. Jesus did this in private. He didn't do it on the street. He did this when he got into the house. The blind man approached him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I can do this? That word believe there is the same root as the word faith. Do you have faith? Do you trust that I can do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes. He touched them, saying, let it be done for you according to your faith. Their eyes were opened, and then Jesus warned them sternly, strictly prohibited them. Be sure that no one finds out. Verse 31, but it didn't matter what he told them. They disobeyed. Anyway, they went out, and they spread the news about him throughout that whole area. We're going to come back to this one in, in a second because of the belief and of the faith part of that. So he heals two blind guys. Then verse 32, just as they were going out, this is like, uh, this is why I called it a blitz. This is why one guy called it a rampage because it's just like immediate, immediate, immediate healing. Verse 32, just as they were going out, a demon-possessed man who was unable to speak was brought to him. Verse 33, when the demon had been driven out. Let's pause right there. What did Jesus do to drive out the demon? We don't know. Doesn't say it. Did he touch him? Who knows? Did he speak? Who knows? Did the demon just see Jesus and then get scared and leave? Who knows? I think that's interesting though. Because all the other ones, Jesus does something. He speaks, he touches, he, he says a word. But here the demon was just like on his, uh, the demon on their own was like, I'm, I'm out of here. Verse 33, after the demon had been driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. And then here are two responses. The crowds were amazed, saying nothing like this has ever been done in Israel. Response number one, but the Pharisees said he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. Jesus is healing here. And what's interesting about what the blind men say, son of David, is that according to the prophets, and I'm going to read a few passages here in a second, but according to the prophets, the messianic age, in other words, the age when the Messiah would come, was, was marked by miracles. So when you hear Deuteronomy talk about, when you hear Moses and Deuteronomy talk about the king that's going to come, it, along with it comes all these miracles. When you hear the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the 12 prophets, when you hear them talk about that future day of the Lord, when the Messiah is going to come, it's always, always surrounded by these, these ideas of healing and deliverance and salvation. Here's a few examples. Isaiah 35 says this, the eyes of the blind, this is talking, Isaiah talking about that one day when the mess messianic king will come. The eyes of the blind will be opened. Interesting, that just happened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. That's Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3 says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me, this is Jesus actually speaking about himself, to bring good news to the poor, the actual poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. 
to provide for those who go mourn in Zion, to give them, I love this, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. That's what the Old Testament talks about, this messianic age. And here we have Jesus doing all of these things. Now, I said we we're going to go back and we're going to look at this idea of faith. So let's do that. Um, look at verse 22 real quick, chapter 9. Verse 22 says this, your faith has saved you. Verse 28, Jesus says to the two blind men, do you have faith that I can do this? They said, yes, Lord. Verse 29, then he touched their eyes saying, let it be done for you according to your faith. Think about a few weeks ago, the paralytic friends, uh, uh, the paralytic's friends, they bring the paralytic on, uh, on a mat and Jesus says what? Seeing their faith, he forgave their sins. Think about the centurion a few weeks ago, uh, before that. Jesus literally said, I have not seen any faith so great in all of Israel. And in that moment, his, his servant was healed. Think of the disciples in the boat and the wind and the waves. He says, oh, you of little faith. Literally calls them little faith people. Now, a few things we need to talk about with faith. Faith, first and foremost, is not just thinking the right things. Faith is not just thinking the right things. We know this from a lot of examples, primarily when Jesus says, the demons believe and tremble. The demons are thinking the right things. In fact, they sometimes have a better theology of God than we do. Faith is not just thinking the right things, and faith is not just being religious, okay? Faith is not just being religious. It's not just doing, the, doing like religious stuff. First and foremost, faith is a response, period. You can tell me all day, I believe that it's cold outside, but if you don't put a coat on when you walk outside, doesn't matter what you say, you don't believe that it's cold outside. You can tell me all day that you believe that Jesus is wise and his teachings are wise, but if you don't reorient how you spend your time, your money, your sexual purity, what you put into your mind, then it doesn't matter what you say. You don't believe that Jesus' teachings are wise. You can tell me all day that Jesus brings a peace that surpasses understanding, but if your life is constantly defined by anxiety and stress and misery, then it doesn't matter what you say. You don't have a faith that, 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 that you don't have a faith in Jesus that brings a peace that surpasses all understanding. Because sometimes we read, we read story, but, but here's, the, here's the danger. Sometimes we read stories like this and we think, well, I just need to muster up enough faith, Right? Like, I just need to, okay, well, I need to get more faith. I need to get more faith. As if God is this, like, or Jesus is like this, you know, vending machine, and you just put your faith coins in, and then, like, out comes, you know, like, okay, like, like once you get to a certain amount of faith, then Jesus is like, all right, now we can work together. But who's that putting the emphasis on? It's putting the emphasis on me. And whenever I read a story about Jesus and faith, and if the, if the emphasis or the response is like about me, then it's probably not a right interpretation of this because it's all about Jesus, always. It is always about Jesus. So it's not a matter of mustering up enough faith. If faith is first and foremost a response, then faith is also about expectancy. Expectancy. Do you expect Jesus to do what he says he's gonna do? Do you expect Jesus to actually give you a peace that surpasses understanding? Do you expect Jesus to actually heal? Do you expect Jesus to actually take care of your needs? 
Faith is primarily a response. When you look at the paralytic's friends, what did they do? They responded. They just walked up to him. When you look at these blind men, isn't it interesting? This is the first time Jesus asked, them a, asked somebody a question before he healed them. Do you believe I can do this? What, what, what was their response? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm here. I'm literally in this house. I followed you into a house. Of course I believe that you can do that. If the blind man stayed outside, if the blind men stayed outside, and all they did was say, have mercy on a son of David, have mercy on a son of David, but then he walked past and they never followed him into the house. They never said, can you heal us? They never said any of these things. Did they have a faith? Did they have an expectancy? The woman with the bleeding, what was her faith? Her faith was shoving through the crowd, reaching out and touching his robe. If she would have sat down and said, well, I think he could heal me, but I'm not actually going to, I don't expect him to, then she would have no faith. Now there's two responses to this. The crowd's response, what's the crowd's response? They were amazed. They were amazed. In other words, they had an expectancy of what God was going to do. They were expectant that Jesus was going to do something. They might have had an experience of God or lack thereof. They might have had a theology of God or lack thereof, but it didn't matter in that moment. They saw Jesus and they were like, I don't care if my theology matches my experience or vice versa. This is amazing. Nothing in all of Israel has ever been done like this. And there's been a lot done in Israel. But what's the Pharisees' response? Fear, skepticism, and calling Jesus the ruler of the demons. Why? Why? because they had an experience of God, or lack thereof, and then therefore they formed their entire theology around this. And so when Jesus came and he brought new wine, as we talked about a few weeks ago, they're like, oh, well, this, isn't, this doesn't fit my categories. This doesn't fit my theology. This doesn't fit who I know God to be. And so therefore they're afraid of him. And they don't respond with anything. They don't respond going up to him. They, 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 they just say he, he drives out ru- demons by the ruler of the demons. And so there, there's a simple question I want to ask. Do you expect Jesus to move in your life? Do you expect Jesus to heal? Or do you have a theology based on your experience? I don't want a theology based on my experience. I want to come to Jesus with expectation. Lord, do what only you can do. If you need to break categories of mine, do it. If you want to bring me outside of my comfort zone and it's a little strange and uncomfortable, but I'm following you and I'm, I'm in community. By the way, this is in community too. This isn't just like me personally. I have my own little, you know, word from the Lord. This is in community. I want to expect Jesus to move. Do you expect Jesus to redeem relationships? Do you expect Jesus to give you boldness in your faith? Do you expect Jesus to fill you with himself to heal? Do you expect Jesus to speak to you in the quiet place? Do you expect Jesus to move in our city? We just sang about it. He's moving in our city. He's moving in our streets. Do we actually expect that? Do we expect Jesus to give us a peace that surpasses understanding, to fill us with the fruit of the Spirit so that we can continually grow into a person of love, of joy, of peace, of patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Or do you expect that I'm just not going to change or that person's not going to change because that's just how the world works? I don't want a lack of expectation in my discipleship to Jesus. 
regardless of the things that I've experienced or not experienced, I want to come to Jesus just like this. The leader who had a lot to lose, whose daughter died, who is socially and, 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 and high up and very, very popular, I want to be like this woman who said, I don't care if it's ritually impure for me to touch him. I, I, I need to be healed. I want to be like these two blind men who actually see Jesus and say, Lord, I'm here. I'm literally right in front of you. I want, of course I believe you. I want to be like these crowds who are amazed every day. Every day I want to be amazed because I've found that if I only expect Jesus to move during a sermon or during a few songs, but then the rest of my week, I don't expect Jesus to move or to teach me, then I am a cultural Christian and I'm a Sunday Christian and I don't want that. I want every day to wake up, say, Holy Spirit, what do you have for me today? Lord, what are you teaching me today? Lord, help me to have the ears to hear you today. Help me to have the eyes to see you today. We pray this a lot. Lord, open our eyes. Lord, open our ears. Do we mean it? Or do we only mean it for this time right here, right now? Because if Jesus does move in our midst, if Jesus does speak, if Jesus does redeem relationships, I don't want to be like the Pharisees and say, well, that's just, that's just weird. That's not Jesus. There's two common uh, features of every character that Jesus heals. The first is they're humble. They're humble. You cannot come up to Jesus and ask for help if you're not humble. And the second is that they ask for faith. They ask for Jesus to heal them. Their faith is their response and they come up to him and, and ask for more faith. And so I want that to be our invitation today. Because if, if we if we want to become disciples of Jesus, who follow him into new creation, who follow him into the kingdom of heaven, then it requires two things, that we humble ourselves, we let go, and we ask. We ask, Lord, redeem this. Lord, heal this. Lord, give me faith. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna uh, again come to the table, and we're gonna take the elements the bread and the cup. And th the reason we do this every week, I was reading in the end of Luke, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Jesus was walking with them, talking with them, and they didn't see him for who he was. Do you guys remember the story? End of Luke 24. They didn't see him for who he was. He's explaining in the scriptures this messianic age and this king and the son of David, who he is, and then he takes the bread, he breaks it, he gives it to them, he prays, and then their eyes are opened. And as soon as their eyes are opened, He's gone. The reason we do this every single week is because this isn't just a, a ritual that we do. I, we believe, we believe, if we believe the Bible, we believe that God is here in our midst. And when we remind ourselves of his body broken for us and his blood poured out for us, that week after week, then one day we might be taking the bread and drinking the cup and we might, we might see, see Jesus for who he is. But you know what it takes? Expectation humility, faith. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, as the man in Mark 9 said. So what I want to do is now I want to, I'm going to, actually, I'm going to invite us first. I want to invite us to just stand up, come to the table, take the elements, return to your seats, and then we'll have a, a few moments of, of silence and reflection together. So let's do that now. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at or you can find us on social media at Gospel.
Thank you.